Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of domestic violence, kidnapping, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Denise sat alone in her living room, waiting for the phone to ring. It was so quiet, she could hear her own heart pounding in her chest. She hung her head and stared at the pistol clutched in her hands. She'd never actually fired it. She wasn't even sure she could, but it was the only thing that made her feel safe. It took four agonizing days of waiting, but eventually, someone did call. Denise half expected it to be the police, contacting her with an update on their investigation. Another part of her dared to hope it was Jeannie, but she was wrong on both counts. There was a man's voice on the other end of the line, one she didn't recognize. The stranger asked Denise if she was friends with Jeannie Bukowski. Nearly breathless, Denise told him she was, best friends. The man wouldn't tell her his name, but said he couldn't live with what he knew on his conscience. Denise gripped the gun in her lap tighter. For a moment, the line was silent. Denise clenched her jaw, panic overwhelming her. She couldn't help herself. She asked frantically, where's Jeannie? Finally, the man told her, she's dead. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we discussed Jeannie Bukowski's relationship with Pernell Jefferson, a college football star with a history of stalking and assaulting women. Jeannie's romantic interest in Pernell disappeared as soon as his abusive behavior began. She tried to break things off before Christmas of 1988, but Pernell refused to let her go. In May of 1989, after months of escalating harassment, he came knocking at her door again. This week, we'll talk about the crime that ended Jeannie's life. We'll discuss how law enforcement mishandled the investigation for weeks until a shocking piece of evidence emerged that cracked the case wide open. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
On the evening of May 5, 1989, 29-year-old Jeannie Bukowski came home from a date. She'd had a good time, but definitely wasn't ready for anything serious yet. She only went out at all because her friend Denise pushed her to widen her social circle. Jeannie dropped her purse and sat down on Denise's couch, waiting for her friend to get home. She didn't want to rush her. It was important for Denise to have her own life after all, but she didn't like being in the house alone. She double-checked the door was locked and flipped on the TV. Jeannie waited patiently for Denise to call on her way home, but she never heard the phone ring. Instead, there was a sudden pounding on the front door. Her blood ran cold. She had no doubt who was standing on the porch. Jeannie jumped up, scrambling to decide what to do as the pounding turned into slamming. It sounded like someone was running full force at the door, like a football player charging the other team. With every blow, the wood splintered. A foot smashed through. Then, a shoulder. Through the broken down door, 25-year-old Pernell Jefferson entered, flanked by three men Jeannie didn't recognize. Pernell's friends, Wayne, Charles, and Mike, looked shocked when they entered and found her on the couch. Apparently, they hadn't been expecting her to be alone, but instead of intervening on her behalf, all three men panicked and fled the apartment, leaving her alone with a fuming Pernell Jefferson. Purnell hardly reacted to his friend's retreat. He grabbed Jeannie's car keys and forced her out of Denise's house. By now, it was all a grim routine to him. This was the second time he'd abducted Jeannie and the third time he'd kidnapped a woman. Clearly, his violence was growing more extreme over time. Before I continue with his psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to Dr. Casey Jordan, a criminologist and behavioral scientist at Western Connecticut State University, for many kidnappers, abduction is like a floodgate. Once they have acted on it, there is no going back. They have plunged off the cliff. Dr. Jordan suggests that once a person has committed a kidnapping, their violence is likely to escalate even further. A 2007 study published in the Journal of Forensic Psychiatry and Psychology found that kidnappers are over 30 times more likely than males in the general population to be convicted of homicide. Purnell was seemingly willing to cross any line to harm Jeannie. He shoved her out of Denise's house and into the passenger seat of her own car. Then he sped away from the scene. Nobody knows exactly what happened while Jeannie and Purnell were alone inside her car. Denise got home from her dance class soon after Jeannie was abducted, but she entered through the garage door, which was at the back of the house. She didn't notice that Jeannie's car was missing and wasn't concerned that her friend hadn't come home. She assumed Jeannie's date had gone well and that she'd gone home with the man. Denise was so tired that she went straight to bed without even looking into the living room. If she had, she would have seen that her front door had been kicked off its hinges. The next morning, Saturday, May 6th, Denise went to work. 
She knew Jeannie still wasn't home, but figured she'd either spent the night with her date or had gotten up early to go see her mother, Carrie. Inexplicably, Denise once again left through the garage without ever passing her broken down front door. As it turned out, Jeannie did have plans with her mother that day. They were supposed to get their hair done together at noon, but Jeannie never showed up at the salon and she didn't answer her phone when Carrie called. At the time, her mother didn't worry too much. They were supposed to get together for dinner that evening and Carrie just figured Jeannie was with Denise or forgot about their appointment. Considering how terrified Jeannie was of Purnell, it's surprising that Denise and Carrie assumed she was safe when they didn't know for sure where she was. This could have been because both Carrie and Denise trusted the other party to keep Jeannie safe. Having full confidence that someone else was watching over Jeannie, they effectively abdicated responsibility for her well-being. It wasn't until they finally talked that evening that they realized something was very wrong. Denise came home from work at 4.15 p.m. Once again, she entered through the garage and went straight to her bedroom. Around five o'clock, Carrie called asking to speak to her daughter, who was by that point late for dinner. Denise took a look around the house. Jeannie wasn't in bed. For the first time since the previous afternoon, she checked her living room. When she saw her busted down front door, her stomach turned to lead. Denise stared at the splintered wood, too terrified to speak. It looked as if the door had been smashed with a hammer. She had no doubt that Purnell was responsible for this. He'd taken Jeannie again. She told Carrie something was wrong. Purnell had abducted Jeannie and she hadn't been there to stop it. Her breath caught in her throat. As hard as she tried to push it away, panic gnawed at her. Carrie hung up the phone to go speak to her husband leaving Denise alone with a guilt that was quickly consuming her. Denise paced back and forth, fighting with herself over whether or not to call the police. Last time Purnell kidnapped Jeannie, she was back home in just a few hours, but it had been nearly 24 hours since her dance class the evening before, and she hadn't seen or heard from Jeannie since. She wanted to get help, but Jeannie told her that if she ever got law enforcement involved, Purnell would come after her too. Denise had promised Jeannie that she wouldn't put herself in danger, but something told her that this time was different. Though she wanted to believe Jeannie was still alive, she knew Purnell was violent and unpredictable. She wouldn't put anything past him and decided she would gladly put her own safety on the line to save her best friend. Denise called the police and reported Jeannie missing. Law enforcement took statements from her and Jeannie's parents, but regardless of the broken down door, they seemed to think it was possible that Jeannie left the house of her own volition. They didn't bother dusting the door for fingerprints or taking any other basic steps to gather evidence. Denise, Carrie, and Jeannie's father, Ben, mentioned Purnell by name, yet detectives didn't even bother to question him. Luckily, someone else did. Denise told Jeannie's ex-boyfriend, Mike, that she suspected Purnell was involved in Jeannie's disappearance. Mike drove to Purnell's home in Richmond and asked if he'd seen her. 
Purnell swore he hadn't been in contact with Jeannie in over two weeks. According to Mike, Purnell seemed calm like he didn't have anything to hide. He left Richmond convinced that whatever happened to Jeannie, Purnell didn't have anything to do with it. But Denise didn't buy the story. She knew Purnell was a seasoned liar. He'd spent his entire life convincing people he was more innocent than he actually was. But so far, he had managed to fly under the radar. On Sunday, May 7th, local news reported that both Jeannie and her car were missing, but no possible suspects were mentioned. Over the next few days, Ben and Carrie called police time and time again, asking for updates about the investigation. But authorities never had anything new to share. Not a single detective had driven to Richmond to question Purnell. They insisted on treating Jeannie like a runaway, not a victim. Meanwhile, Denise was increasingly afraid for her own safety. She feared that Purnell would come after her for involving the police and bought a pistol to protect herself. Most days, she sat frozen on her couch, the gun in her lap, paralyzed with fear that Purnell would come pounding at her door. Then, on May 10th, everything changed. While Denise was sitting on her couch, worrying about her friend, she received a call from an anonymous man. The stranger told her, Jeannie was dead. Denise begged the man to speak to the police. After some convincing, he acquiesced and identified himself to detectives as Joey St. Augustine, one of Purnell's co-workers. He told investigators that Purnell shot and killed Jeannie. He knew because he'd helped bury the body. When we return, Joey goes to the authorities, but Purnell slips through their grasp. Parcasters, in celebration of our favorite month, we're bringing you something really special, a brand new original series called Superstitions, featuring bad omens, good luck charms, and old wives' tales you really don't want to ignore. Every week on Superstitions, hear stories that illustrate the eeriness and unlock the mysteries of humanity's strangest codes of conduct, taking a closer look at the beliefs and practices that may just have the power to change our fates. Like holding your breath while passing a cemetery, or carrying the foot of an animal known to have an evil eye, or using iron to keep away the devil, they may seem mystical or even completely illogical, but one thing is certain, you ignore them at your own risk. You can find and follow Superstitions free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. To hear more podcast shows, search Podcast Network and Spotify search bar and find a growing slate of spooky October programming to enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. 
On Friday, May 5, 1989, 25-year-old Pernell Jefferson abducted 29-year-old Jeannie Bukowski from her friend Denise's home. The next day, Denise reported Jeannie missing, but police treated her disappearance like she was a runaway rather than the victim of a kidnapping. It wasn't until Wednesday, May 10th, that a break finally came in the case. That day, a man named Joey St. Augustine told police that Purnell had killed Jeannie. He promised he could lead investigators to the body. On the condition that his identity remain a secret, Joey agreed to meet officers in downtown Richmond and direct them to Jeannie's remains. The next day, authorities picked Joey up and they drove to a church just outside of Richmond. Behind the building was a construction zone and a patch of forest. Joey led police into the trees. When they got to the spot where Jeannie's body was supposed to be, however, there was nothing but dirt and twigs. Joey was dumbstruck. Just a few days ago, he'd dropped Purnell off there so he could get rid of the evidence. Now, Jeannie's body had vanished. As honest as Joey's confusion was, investigators looked at him with suspicion. They wondered whether Joey was just trying to throw them off the trail. Perhaps he thought it was fun to interfere with an ongoing investigation. Either way, the detectives felt like they'd been made into fools. There was one detective, though, who thought Joey knew far too much to be making it all up. After all, it didn't seem like Joey had anything to gain by lying. Instead of scrapping the lead, that officer asked Joey if he'd be willing to let the police bug his apartment, then invite Purnell over to try and elicit a confession. Joey was reluctant. He claimed Purnell would kill him if he found out he was working with the police. To help ease his fears, Authorities promised they would be close enough to intervene if Purnell got violent. Ultimately, Joey agreed. Investigators placed microphones in his apartment, and around 6.30 that evening, Purnell came to visit. From their vehicle down the road, officers heard Joey and Purnell exchange friendly greetings. After that, though, all they could make out were low, muffled whispers. They grew more and more frustrated, until Purnell left Joey's apartment 22 minutes later. The baffled officers went back to Joey's apartment and confronted him as soon as Purnell was gone. Joey confessed that he'd gotten scared and told Purnell that the room was bugged. Police couldn't believe his incompetence. Not only had he failed to even try to get a confession, but now Purnell knew authorities were on his trail. The very next day, Purnell packed up his things and fled the town. He drove over 800 miles to Stewart, Florida, where he moved in with a family member. Law enforcement had no idea where he'd gone. The sting operation was an utter failure. Joey didn't seem like a trustworthy witness and without a confession, investigators doubted anything he said was true. Purnell's decision to skip town was obviously incriminating, but authorities still believed he could be innocent. They didn't even try to track him down. After the failed bugging, it seemed to Denise, Carrie, and Ben that Virginia Beach police just gave up. But the people who loved Jeannie refused to back down. 
Jeannie's parents still called the station numerous times a day for updates. They drove around Virginia Beach and Richmond for hours, hoping to find Jeannie's car either driving on the road or parked somewhere. Even though Joey told police Jeannie was dead, her parents still held out hope that they would find her alive. Denise, on the other hand, was sure that Purnell had killed her friend. Police had yet to find her body, but Denise felt certain that if Jeannie was alive, she would have heard from her. By late June, Carrie also believed her daughter was gone for good. She wanted to make funeral arrangements, but her husband Ben tried to talk her down. He had faith that his daughter was out there somewhere, still breathing. Months passed with no word from police. Authorities were being willfully obtuse, prolonging the suffering of Jeannie's family. They still weren't trying to track down Purnell, who Denise, Carrie, and Ben all knew was the one to blame for her disappearance. As July 1989 wound to a close, Carrie was so desperate for answers that she hired a psychic. She had never looked to myth or magic for answers before, but she felt like she had no other options. Carrie's decision is not uncommon considering her circumstances. A 2019 study by Murray State University psychologist Christopher Hannon found that those who felt desperate due to uncertainty engaged in superstitious behaviors and desperation was a predictor for use of superstitions. Belief like these can help people feel like they have more control over the world. Even though Carrie wasn't normally one to seek help from a fortune teller, she was desperate and it felt like one of the only remaining avenues for information about her daughter. The woman told Carrie what she already knew. Her daughter was dead. However, the psychic also claimed to have an idea of where Jeannie's body was hidden. She said Jeannie was somewhere near a stream fed by the tides and that in her vision, she saw a windmill close by. Ben didn't believe in clairvoyance, but he was also desperate and agreed to search in places that matched the psychic's description. He and Carrie made a list of every stream and windmill in the Virginia Beach and Richmond area. They drove to each location, crossing them off one by one, but found no sign of their daughter. Yet another dead end. Ben was fed up with false hope and was beyond frustrated with the Virginia Beach Police Department. He decided it was time to take a different tact. He hired a private detective near the end of July, 1989. Within a matter of weeks, the detective tracked down Purnell in Stuart, Florida. Purnell was working at a jewelry store in West Palm Beach, about a 40 mile commute from his family member's house. He didn't exactly draw any attention to himself, but he wasn't really trying to hide either. He was dating two different women and kept a gun in his car, ostensibly for protection. Ben immediately forwarded the information to the Virginia Beach police. He expected them to be thankful, if not ecstatic. The private detective had done their job for them and single-handedly located the man who should have been their prime suspect. But officers acted confused as to why Ben thought they would bother questioning Purnell at all. They had no body and no weapon. 
Because Jeannie's car was still missing, it was possible, albeit highly improbable, that she simply drove away that day. It didn't matter that Denise, Carrie, Ben, and Joey all testified to Purnell's history of violence, abuse, and stalking. Police wouldn't even interrogate him without some kind of physical evidence linking him to the crime. Tragically, their obstinance meant the investigation was at a dead end. But somehow, the lives of Jeannie's loved ones went on. That August, her 30th birthday came and went. Thanksgiving passed. By December, an oppressive cloud had settled over her entire family. Christmas had been her favorite holiday. She always decorated the house with lights and bells. That year, Carrie and Ben's home was dark and quiet. Carrie pulled herself out of bed slowly on Christmas morning. If Jeannie had been there, the smell of cinnamon rolls and coffee would be floating out of the kitchen. There would be a tall tree strung with lights surrounded by presents. Instead, there was nothing but an empty living room. She trudged to the kitchen and put on a pot of coffee. As it brewed, she prayed. She'd been begging God to bring her daughter back every morning and every night since Jeannie had disappeared. That morning, though, she told God she was too tired to plead any longer. If she couldn't have Jeannie back alive, then she needed something else, anything that could give her closure. She asked God for whatever he was willing to give her. And less than a week later, her prayers were answered. On January 1st, 1990, a deer hunter named Randy Duclaw ventured into a patch of wilderness about 40 miles southwest of Richmond, along with his trusty hound. The dog seemed unusually distracted that morning. It pressed its snout to the ground and chased a scent deep into the woods. Randy called after his pet, but it wouldn't come back. He sighed and followed it into the trees. When he finally reached the pup, he found it pawing at something in a dried up creek bed. As he got closer, Randy realized the dog was batting at a human skull. Part of him hoped it was fake, some leftover Halloween decoration that a couple of teenagers had thrown into the woods. But when Randy picked it up, there was no doubt that it was real. Under the bright mid-morning sun, he took a close look at the bone. There were two holes, one near each temple. Somehow, however, the bullet was still inside, right where the brain should have been. Randy realized with horror that he was holding evidence of a crime. He drove straight to the Amelia County Police Station and turned the skull over to authorities. One investigator discovered that the scalp had a single red hair still attached to it. Detectives had Randy lead them back to the area where he found the skull. They dug deeper and uncovered a piece of denim, a ring, part of a necklace, and a lot more bones, including an arm with a charm bracelet still fastened to the wrist. Investigators also uncovered a single piece of fabric that was charred on the edges. From this, they deduced that the body and clothing had been burned. 
Amelia County Police notified law enforcement agencies across Virginia that they had located the remains of a young adult woman with red hair. Officers from Virginia Beach reached out to say that they had an open case for a missing person who matched the description. The very next day, dental records confirmed that the skull belonged to Jeannie Bukowski. Denise, Carey, and Ben were relieved that Jeannie's body had finally been found. Still, the truth was hard to swallow. The discovery of her skeleton meant she was gone for good. Jeannie was never coming back. To make matters worse, they hardly had time to mourn because the new evidence kickstarted the investigation that should have been happening all along. Suddenly, police were very interested in questioning Purnell, the man Denise, Carrie, and Ben had been pointing them towards for nearly eight months. Once authorities turned their full attention to Jeannie's case, it was one discovery after another. On January 16th, they found her car parked at an apartment complex near Richmond. After a series of interviews, they learned Purnell had sold the car to a drug dealer in exchange for a small amount of money and cocaine. The interviews also pointed them to Wayne Scott, one of the men who helped Purnell break into Denise's home on May 5th. Wayne was called to the station for questioning. Although he was resistant at first, it didn't take long for police to convince him that they had Purnell pegged. Wayne soon divulged enough information for them to officially charge Purnell with murder. Detectives then embarked on the eight-hour drive to Stewart, Florida, where they knew 26-year-old Purnell was staying. When authorities entered the house, they found Purnell cowering in a closet, trying to hide. On February 3, 1990, about nine months after Jeannie went missing, Purnell Jefferson was arrested for her murder. Up next, Purnell goes on trial. Now, back to the story. After a hunter discovered 29-year-old Jeannie Bukowski's body in Virginia, police finally arrested 26-year-old Purnell Jefferson, the man Jeannie's family and friends had been pushing them to investigate all along. A nearly nine-month-long investigation was finally reaching its end. Although she had to wait a while before Purnell went to trial, Jeannie's best friend Denise already knew she was going to testify in court. Nobody knew Jeannie or Purnell quite like she did. Carrie and Ben couldn't bring themselves to take the stand. In March 1991, when Purnell's trial began, it was hard enough just for them to sit in the courtroom and listen to lawyers argue about their daughter's death. It was even more difficult to listen to Purnell as he pleaded not guilty. He tried to cast Jeannie's death as an accident but his defense was dubious and easily called into question by those who spoke against him. The prosecution brought to the stand not only Denise, but also Wayne, Charles, and Mike, the three men who had helped Purnell break into Denise's home two years before. This testimony made it possible for authorities to piece together what happened after Jeannie's abduction. Purnell's friends had agreed to take part in a robbery, not a kidnapping. They fled when they realized what their friend was really up to. 
but Purnell nevertheless managed to rope them into his scheme after the murder. The day after the kidnapping, Purnell allegedly called Wayne and told him that he had killed Jeannie. He then called Joey St. Augustine, the coworker who told police he knew where Jeannie's body was and coordinated with both men to hide the evidence. According to testimony, Joey really did know where Jeannie's body had been. Purnell and his friends, however, came back to move it later on. Wayne and Mike testified that four days after the murder, they drove with Purnell to the Richmond construction area where Jeannie's body was originally buried. At Purnell's direction, they moved her to a more remote area in Amelia, about 40 miles away. Then they burned her remains. As part of a plea deal, Wayne testified that he was the one who lit the match. But exactly what happened on the night of May 5th remained unclear. Purnell admitted that he kidnapped Jeannie, saying that he did something silly and out of character. Denise countered his testimony, telling the judge and jury that this frightening behavior was very much in character. He had a long history of abuse. She made it clear that Purnell was, without a doubt, capable of murder. No matter the evidence stacked against him, Purnell continued to deny that he was capable of violence. According to him, after he drove Jeannie away from Denise's home, he gave her a pistol so that she would feel safer. She allegedly pointed the gun at Purnell and a small tussle ensued. Purnell said Jeannie accidentally fired the gun at the roof of the car and the next thing he knew, she was dead. Instead of calling the police, he tried to hide the evidence. Forensic experts pointed out that his story was inconsistent with Jeannie's injuries. The chances of a bullet ricocheting off the roof and hitting her in the temple were so low that it was practically impossible. The holes in her skull were likely caused by a gun fired deliberately at point-blank range. It was possible, experts said, that Purnell fired one shot at her temple and that the bullet remained inside her skull when it broke through the bone, but not the skin on the other side. Furthermore, Purnell's actions following the crime were highly incriminating. He hid and attempted to destroy evidence, then fled to another state when he realized that authorities were closing in on him. Purnell clung to his claims that Jeannie's death was an accident, but the jury didn't buy it. On March 30th, 1991, Purnell was found guilty of capital murder at the age of 27. On August 6th of that same year, he was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum sentence of 25 years. When the court adjourned during the initial trial, Jeannie's father, Ben, suddenly felt overcome by fatigue. He tried to stand, then collapsed on the courtroom floor. Carrie rushed to her husband and held his head in her hands. Ben slowly woke up, his eyelashes fluttering weakly. He didn't know what had happened. His doctors later called it an anxiety attack, an intense flood of every emotion he'd bottled up over the last nine months. He'd hoped that after Purnell's sentencing, some of the pain and rage would subside, but it didn't. It was so powerful that it knocked him right off his feet. 
Ben tried to speak on the courtroom floor, but thankfully he didn't have to. Carrie understood. Watching Purnell walk out in handcuffs was the ultimate catharsis, but it was punctuated by sorrow. No matter what happened now, Jeannie was still gone. To Jeannie's parents, no sentence would have been severe enough for the man who killed their daughter. Purnell, on the other hand, believed his punishment was far too extreme. He continued to insist that Jeannie's death wasn't his fault and tried to appeal his case twice. Both attempts were unsuccessful. Perhaps because he was unable to convince the legal system that he was innocent, he eventually turned to media outlets. In statements to Wilt Browning, a journalist who wrote a book about Jeannie's murder, Purnell compared himself to Jekyll and Hyde. Normally, he said, he was Dr. Jekyll, a kind, if perhaps overly ambitious man. But there was a side of his personality that resembled the monstrous Mr. Hyde. Although Purnell still denied shooting Jeannie, he blamed anabolic steroids for effectively turning him into Mr. Hyde and driving him to kidnap her. Although steroids are a convenient scapegoat and could have increased Purnell's strength and aggression, research remains inconclusive about whether or not they actually cause violence. Steroid-induced psychosis is a documented phenomenon, but it is most commonly brought on by medically prescribed corticosteroids, not the illicit anabolic steroids Purnell was taking. According to a long-term study conducted by medical doctors and psychiatrists from Harvard University and the University of Osaka, high doses of anabolic steroids can directly cause hypomanic or manic symptoms, sometimes associated with aggression and violence, but not all studies have documented such mood changes and psychological effects appear to be variable and idiosyncratic. It's possible that Purnell's violent tendencies were heightened by his steroid use, but it seems unlikely that the drugs were the root cause. Before he ever took steroids, Purnell abused his high school girlfriend. His decision to kidnap Jeannie was motivated by a desire to control her, not by a sudden bout of steroid-induced psychosis or insanity. He planned the abduction deliberately, and no matter how much he tried to deny it, physical and circumstantial evidence made it clear he was responsible for Jeannie's death. Purnell's conviction and imprisonment lent scarce solace to Jeannie's friends and family. They knew he was guilty, but instead of being forthcoming with the truth, he'd made Jeannie's death the subject of mystery and debate. Denise never had any questions about what happened on May 5th. From the moment she saw her broken down door, she knew Purnell was to blame. She wanted him to get his comeuppance and she resented the fact that journalists gave him any opportunity to reform his image. Jeannie's mother has suggested that the particulars of the night of May 5th matter less than the fact that Purnell terrorized Jeannie for nearly a year beforehand. In a 1994 interview, Carrie said, Purnell killed her before he shot her because he frightened her to death. Although the last year of Jeannie's life was characterized by fear and anxiety, Carrie and Ben chose to remember her as a person she was before she ever met Purnell. 
They recalled Jeannie as jovial and bright. To reflect this, they went back to the abandoned creek bed in Amelia where her body was burned and scattered 20 pounds of wildflower seeds. Every year, Carrie goes back to Amelia and plants more brilliant flowers. What used to be a patch of crumbling brown earth is now a vast expanse of colorful blooms. Each one is a reminder of the life that was stolen from Jeannie Bukowski and of the lives that her memory still touches today. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with another episode. You can find all episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Trent Williamson with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Karis Allen with writing assistance by Terrell Wells. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Remember to follow Superstitions for new episodes featuring our most unusual beliefs. Are they side effects of ancient folklore or truly the masters of our fates? Look closely and examine the writing on the wall. Superstitions airs every Wednesday, free on Spotify.